delight. Seriously, I think I could listen to that all day. Anyways, this is the Bruce Lee episode. Ah, but wait, because of course I waited too long to do this episode, and in that time, something important happened. Folks, this episode is going to be dedicated to the memory of Bob Wall. Bob Wall was a co-star of Bruce Lee's on Enter the Dragon, and so right now I'll just say, if you haven't seen Enter the Dragon, go watch Enter the Dragon, because Oh my goodness, it's an amazing, amazing film. One of the greatest films ever made, absolutely. Anyways, Bob Wall starred as O'Hara, one of the villains in the movie, and that's all I'll say for now because I don't quite want to give away a ton of spoilers. Now, despite playing a nasty villain, Mr. Wall, who passed on the 30th of last month, was an important member of the American martial arts community having done much to promote the respectability of the practice of martial arts in America. He was also a good friend of Lee's and Chuck Norris. So this episode goes out to Mr. Robert Wall. Thank you. Hello there, everyone. Welcome to Heroes in History, where we bring history to your character sheets. In this episode, we take a look at the most important martial artists in modern history, Bruce Lee, and make a monk out of him in D&D. It's episode 7 of Heroes in History. Nihao ma, everyone! It's your boy, Punk Rock AJ, and welcome to 2022! <laughs> yes, I'm back, having now fully embraced my role as the greatest procrastinator in all of podcasting. In all seriousness, while the holidays crept up on me, 2022 has been pretty good to me so far. Not great, but pretty good. Therefore, I won't get into any great detail with anything. Suffice to say, I hope you've all had a great new year and things have continued to be good for you. I'm always thankful for any listener and I sincerely wish you all the best. A little bit of ketchup though. Hey guys, I have a Patreon. I bring this up because, um, nudge nudge, wink wink, blink blink. <laughs> in all seriousness though, if you are a fan of my work in any way, I sincerely hope you take some time to check out my Patreon currently. I have three tiers and depending on how things go, I might be inclined to add a few more, but for now, I have the $3 Squire tier. For $3 a month, you get access to special polls, surveys, and shoutouts on the show. Next is the $5 Night tier. For $5 a month, I can cover a historical figure of your choice and make a quick little mini build out of it and have this be a part of the episode. 
taking that character to level 3. I say many build because I think that's all I have the time for at the moment, but who knows? Maybe that character will be getting a build of their own someday anyways. And then finally, for $7 a month, you get a special episode of Heroes and Mirth. A sort of bonus extra little show in relation to Heroes and History that I will be working on. In this month's episode of Heroes and Mirth, I review and go over the historical RPG Chronica Feudalis. Super interesting stuff. That RPG is a piece of art and is a story unto itself. Really, really cool thing to talk about. And the next month, March, it's in celebration of its one-year anniversary. We're going to do Godzilla vs. Kong in D&D, where I show off my Godzilla and Kong builds and have them duke it out. Big, punchy, punchy, rah, rah, kind of stuff. Very cool extra bonus show. Speaking of which, I have a bunch of ideas for other podcasts. I have, like, ideas all the time. That's why it's sometimes hard for me to focus on things. I want to keep my expectations of myself reasonable, especially since I'm in between jobs at the moment, and OMG, every day is a sort of mini-waking nightmare unto itself. <laughs> what, what, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, other shows. Well, you gotta take risks and chances when you can, so I at least want to introduce one other show. Folks, at least one other show I want to start soon is Rage for Rage, a show where we use the lens of Rage Against the Machine songs to look over recent and political history. That's where I'm starting off, but I have other ideas as well for other shows. Finally, some shoutouts. I'm a big fan of cryptids and paranormal history, and I recently reached out to two paranormal podcasts. Everyone, please go check out the Kryptonaut podcast and the Little Spooky podcast. They're both great, and for a little spooky, I was referenced on their Medieval Monsters episode, which is super appropriate, because then you can use some of those monsters in your own D&D game. So look at that. So good stuff all around. And again, if you like the show at all, please send me a little bit of support. While Heroes in History will always be free, I could really use the help. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash punkrockajpodcasts. Or you could also leave me a five-star review on wherever you heard this episode to help spread the word out a little bit more. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Every little bit helps. Now, let's get into it. In today's episode, we're looking over Bruce Lee. Stop. Okay, as much as I want to get to the good stuff too, let's stick to the normal episode format, which means going over the history of the class we'll be casting him in first. And that class is the monk, which right away is a bit of a misnomer, at least for cats like me who took a linguistics course. BTW, never take a linguistics course. Oh, you might think you're going into that class to learn cool facts about languages and whatnot, but actually, that class is secretly a quantum mechanics course. Trust me, by the time you'll know what I'm talking about, it will already be too late. But I digress. Where were we? Oh yeah, monks. Because in D&D, a monk means this... Whereas the word itself could just as easily denote this. So what's going on here? Okay, fine, let's go over the history of the word first. From dictionary.com, monk refers to the dark area of a printing page caused by uneven printing of the plate or type. Wait, really? Oh, that's the printing definition. The actual definition is, in any religion, a man who is a member of a monastic order. 
In the Western tradition, this largely refers to followers of the Christian faith who dedicate themselves to the church, also sometimes colloquially known as friars. But applying a bit of a broad stroke, this can refer to a member of, say, the Buddhist order, a Buddhist monk. For the purposes of this episode, we will be focusing solely on this definition in reference to monks of Eastern faiths. And trust me, I wouldn't see using such a broad term like that, Eastern faiths, but there's so much history here, that of course being how Buddhism came to Greater Asia. So bear with me, I'm going to go through it all very fast here. But as a topic, this is one that's worthy of its entire own series of shows. There are lots of shows about Buddhism, about the history of Buddhism. So if this topic interests you, please go out there and do your own you know, research. I'm friends with B.T. Newberg at the History of Sex podcast and his original show, Dead Ideas. Uh, he had a big series dedicated to Buddhist mummies in Japan, which was super cool, so you could go check that out. But anyways, let's keep going. Buddhism, as a religion-slash-philosophical tradition, it's a bit of both, is attributed to Siddhartha Gautama, a prince who lived in ancient India. Right before-slash-around the same time as ancient Greek philosophers like Socrates and his students. As a prince, he was born into a realm of privilege, as India practiced its caste system, which is still thus today. And Guatama was a member of the nobility, but he was fascinated and perturbed by the state of suffering felt by the lower castes. He renounced his lay life and eventually built his own monastic tradition, which sought enlightenment and relief from suffering through the search for nirvana, an elevated mental state. By finding nirvana, the prince became the Buddha. Buddhism has a very long history, so for more information, Please watch 1993's Little Buddha, where the Buddha, an Indian man, was played by Keanu Reeves. Whoa. Suffice to say that Buddhism spread throughout Greater Asia, eventually reaching ancient China, speeding things along quite a bit. Martial arts, including Kung Fu, developed in ancient China. Actually, I apologize, that's a bit of a misnomer as well. Martial arts do not come solely from China. Most countries with any sort of long history will often develop their own form of martial art, if for no other reason because life is tough and people need a way to protect themselves. Though, if you really want to be somewhat pedantic, the first known codified martial art was Kalari Piyatu, a martial art coming from India that focuses on form and long leaps. The term itself, martial arts, means the arts of Mars, a reference to the Roman god of war. There are lots of martial arts from all around the world that developed independently on their own, like capoeira from Brazil. Okijita from the First Nation peoples of North America, and the Rising Hima, historical European martial arts, which I want to learn more about and I want to practice more because, you know, that's my ancestry and I love medieval stuff, I love knights and Chinese armor and stuff like that, but the martial arts of China and Asia are easily the most famous and arguably the most well codified of the world's martial arts. And eventually, those aforementioned Buddhist monks coming out of India and into China became the main teachers of Kung Fu. Obviously, the story is much more complex than that, but, well, you know, not by much. Suffice to say that the word monk became conflated with these martial arts practitioners and Buddhism. And that was the word-slash-definition that the authors of D&D latched onto when writing their product. As for said class, well, as it turns out, the monk might have the most complicated publication history of any class we have looked at thus far. Monks first appeared in 1974 in the supplement booklet Men and Magic, and this was a bizarre thing I learned about, but the original monk was actually a subclass of cleric. Which, while I can see it, is crazy considering how different these two classes now are. For example, almost all cleric builds incorporate armor, and modern monks often have fairly strict armor restrictions. 
Specifically, as a subclass, the monk was a cleric of the Order of Monastic Martial Arts, to which I say, sign me up. To the credit of these original game designers, this version of the monk had some of the same traits that future interpretations builds would have, including the ability Quivering Palm, but overall was pretty different. Then, in basic D&D, the monk was rebranded as the Mystic, and then, the actually weird part, became an NPC class. Weird. But as everyone knows, we don't talk about Mystics, so moving on. The martial arts monk that we are familiar with finally made his debut as a PC class in AD&D in 1978 with all of the clunky baggage that comes with those earlier editions. A slightly retooled version of the class then reappeared again in 1985 in the first edition of Oriental Adventures. Oriental Adventures, simply put, was DSR's campaign book that exploited lingering misconceptions of Eastern exoticism. That might be a bit unfair, but as I don't have the book in front of me, and it came out in the barbaric time that was the 80s, I'm uh, going to go out on a limb here. Most monster manuals published today include monsters from all over the world and all folklore and all traditions, so there's no need for books like Oriental Adventures anymore. Anyways, this book was published up until the 3rd edition, but has been mostly phased out since the arrival of slightly better common sense. Slightly. 2nd edition is a bit of a blank spot for the monk, as the class didn't appear in the core rulebook and only in somewhat distant accompanying extra source material. 3rd edition is where things start to calm down a bit. The monk appears as one of the core level classes, and I believe is mostly intact and in line with our preconceptions of the monk class. 4th edition! Ah uh, yes, 4th edition. Guys, I gotta be honest, I never played 4th edition, though yes, I know all about the reception it received, but, and hopefully this doesn't reveal too much of my personality, I'm going to go ahead and give it a big fat F because the monk is not one of the core classes again, and only appears in the player's handbook 3, tacked on with extra 4th edition nonsense. Ugh. Finally, 5th edition gives us what might be the clearest, most concise form of the monk yet. It's in the core rulebook, it's got its base abilities where they're supposed to be, and I'm going to give a big sigh of relief on the count of three. One, two, three. <sighs> okay, we've got a hopefully good look at the background of this class. What exactly does this class do? Well, a monk is a martial class built around the image of the Kung Fu practicing Buddhist monk of yore, with abilities inspired by and most likely directly lifted from the genre of wuxia. Wuxia is the type of story that you see in movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and House of Flying Daggers. You know, stuff like bouncing on bamboo shoots, blowing doors open with your palm, and the like. Personally, I prefer more grounded martial arts movies like what you see in Jackie Chan, Iko Awais, or, well, Bruce Lee movies, but Wuxia is still pretty cool. BTW, if you have Netflix, go watch The Night Comes For Us. It's one of the most violent movies I've ever seen in my entire life that has some incredible martial art duels to the death Highly recommended, not for the weak of heart. The night comes for us. Anyways, monks have unarmored defense, which increases their AC without them having to wear armor, slow fall to keep them from getting hurt from long falls, and one of their main attack options is flurry of blows, which allows them to strike multiple times with their unarmed strikes, you know, like fists and kicks and headbutts and stuff. And while certainly the favorite of weeps across the world, I'm not gonna lie, I definitely want to play a monk as well someday. Now, it's time to talk about our main star, Bruce Lee. Lee Jun Fong was born in 1940 in San Francisco to two Chinese parents. In both the hour and year of the dragon, though sorry, we're not turning him into a dragonborn. Apparently, a nearby nurse recommended the name Bruce for his English name, and that was that. 
His maternal great-granduncle was a Dutch-Jewish man, and his father was a Cantonese opera star, and so young Lee was born into a fairly well-to-do family. But his early childhood was rough. When he and his parents moved back to Hong Kong, they came back right before Japan launched a massive surprise attack on the city and then proceeded to hold it under occupation. And while the Japanese would soon leave, that didn't mean that life would be any easier for young Bruce. Despite his later status as a fitness icon, Bruce actually had a few health problems as a child. He had what might be considered today to be ADD, and he had an undescended testicle, though as he was an American citizen by birth, that did keep him from being drafted into the Vietnam War. So, you know, you win some and you lose some. None of that, however, could keep him from being bullied for having that tiny bit of a non-Chinese element in his bloodline. And so Bruce Lee got into a ton of schoolyard scraps as a child. During these early years, he was trained in Wing Chun-style Kung Fu by the venerable Ip Man, who would soon have a series of movies based after him as well. They'll only watch the first one because otherwise... I don't want to say they suck, but they're not really my thing. It's like, hey, I'm Ip Man, I'm the best in the world, but you don't want to take me on in a fight. Uh, yes I do, I want to fight you. No you don't. Yes I do. No you don't. Yes I do. Alright then. Oh, <laughs> why did you beat me up so bad? Because I'm Ip Man and I warned you. Like, that's fine for like the first movie, but imagine that being for two hours for every movie. Just, ugh, the Ip Man movies are not for me, but I really digress there. <laughs> but it wasn't just backyard and rooftop brawls. As a teenager, Bruce was just an overall extremely physical kid. Not only Wing Chun, he was also a boxing champion at his local high school, he was a proficient fencer, and he was also a cha-cha champion. As in cha-cha dancing. Because that makes sense. But eventually, Bruce got into one fight too many, and eventually, he beat up the son of a local triad leader, or so the legend goes. And as a reaction to that, his father gave him $800 and sent him to live with his aunt and uncle in Bel Air. I mean, they sent him to live in San Francisco. Soon, though, he made his way even further north to Seattle. Here, while working part-time as a waiter at a local restaurant, Bruce Lee would do two things. First, he would attend university and graduate with a degree in drama and philosophy. And second, he would open his own martial arts school. Several, in fact, in the time of his life. As time went on, life would grant him a family with his wife, Linda, who was a former student of his, and some kids. Brandon and Shannon Lee mourned them later. Life would then take him and his young family even further south, where he would gain enough reputation to be invited to the 1964 Long Beach Martial Arts Exposition. And just as he had begun to start giving up on his dream of acting full-time, a Hollywood producer would see him perform and soon invite me to Hollywood, baby. Actually, let's back up a bit, because we skipped over a lot of history. You see, broadly speaking, most average Americans who know anything about Bruce Lee know that he started The Green Hornet, and then had his four or five major movies. That's true, but not the whole story. You see, you may recall that I mentioned how Bruce Lee's father was a Cantonese opera star. Well, this gave Lee Sr. some clout with the burgeoning Hong Kong film industry. And so, even before his major introduction to American audiences on the 1966 Green Hornet TV show, Bruce Lee had starred in at least 20 Hong Kong movies. His filmography page on Wikipedia states that his first film was as a baby in a 1941 production, and in total, he would start in 32 movies and have 14 television appearances, including an unaired episode of Dagwood, apparently. The point being is that Lee had almost quite literally been born for film, and at this point, he still had the acting bug and he had it bad. In fact, let's just lay it all bare. Why is Bruce Lee such a big deal? 
You see, while yes, Bruce Lee is easily the most famous martial arts art to have ever lived, it goes much further than that. Let's start with how Asian people were perceived as in American cinema and by extension across American culture as a whole. This is a very deep and problematic role for one to fall into, but broadly speaking, Asian people were seen as weak and demure, and were very easily pushed around, especially Asian men, who were seen as conniving and effeminate. You would think America would have learned its lesson after recently surviving three major wars with three different Asian countries by the 70s, but I digress. I remember in a film history course, we were shown an early silent film starring the legendary Sesue Harakawa, one of, if not the first major Asian-American star in Hollywood. The film in question, I believe, was His Debt, where, yeah, his villainous character was pretty conniving, especially lusting after the main white female character, only for him to get his comeuppance at the end. I bring this up in part because Sesue Harakawa is a fascinating man in his own right, but his life story is highlighted by the racial discrimination he faced in Hollywood. I've been somewhat dancing around the issue, but specifically, he was targeted by miscegenation laws in the Hollywood production code at the time. This is an extremely racial concept, meaning that Sesue Harakawa, despite being an incredibly handsome fellow and the heartthrob of your great-great-great-grandma, was not allowed to have romantic roles with actresses outside of his own race. He was thus forced to play exotic villainous lovers, often steeped in misconceptions of Orientalism. The fact that this was in the era of Japanese nationalism didn't help at all. Sesue Harakawa was the victim of discrimination both in the US and Japan, the latter of which believed that Sesue Harakawa was misrepresenting their culture. All this said, Harakawa sought a very fruitful film career, but I highlight his story because it is unfortunately prototypical of the experience Asian actors had to face in Hollywood at this time. They lived in a time where they couldn't get past these walls of insensitive misconceptions. And while the Hollywood production code of those olden days no longer exists, its presence can still absolutely be felt. Now, go watch Enter the Dragon, and you can see just how severely Bruce Lee just utterly smashed those misconceptions. Wait, hold on, we're getting ahead of ourselves just a bit. Again, I'm doing that a lot this episode, apparently. <laughs> Anyways, returning to our place in the current timeline. Bruce Lee began starring on American TV, popping up all over the place, most famously in The Green Hornet. Primarily, though, he made money opening up schools and teaching martial arts to other celebrities. But while he was indeed doing pretty good, he was still accruing quite a bit of debt. After getting those few acting gigs in Hollywood and having his career go nowhere, Bruce Lee found himself eventually going back to Hong Kong, feeling somewhat defeated, apparently. Wherein he found that he had become an absolute sensation to Asian audiences everywhere. Even though Bruce Lee hadn't had any major film roles, the times he had appeared on TV had already made him extremely popular as one of Hong Kong's own, despite, you know, being ostracized as a kid by local racists. Now, back in Hong Kong, Bruce Lee began starring in local productions which were extremely profitable, like films that were made on lean $100,000 budgets that then earned a thousand times that profit back kind of profitable. Now, to be clear, the filmography of Bruce Lee is unfortunately quite messy. Not only are his films somewhat split between both Hong Kong and American productions, but several of Lee's films were released posthumously or finished with leftover footage. The point being, though, is that these Hong Kong productions, largely consistent of his first three full-length movies, which, <laughs> OMFG, 
have some absolutely fantastic and bonkers film posters. Seriously, go check them out. And these films made so much cash that they soon garnered the full-on interest of Hollywood, culminating in Lee's largest and easily his most famous film, Enter the Dragon. And man, oh man, is Enter the Dragon a good movie. TBH, I only saw it for the first time relatively recently, but I was floored by how well the film as a whole still holds up. Despite being an extremely difficult shoot and having slight tintings of 70s silliness, such as the fact that this island has an underground base and thus there are some early James Bond era spy shenanigans, ETD, as I will refer to it for the sake of ease, is a surprisingly dark film. It is a story of revenge and violence, and Bruce Lee freaking sells it. I think there are a few times in the basic dialogue scenes where Lee could show maybe like a bit more anger or emotion here and there and whatnot, but overall he just oozes charisma. One of the scenes that really struck out to me is the scene where he set the trap for the henchman and as he's waiting, he just strikes that bored posture, resting his head on his hand as the henchman proceeds to get blown up by his trap, and he's like, yep, I knew that was going to happen. Also, kudos to John Saxon and Jim Kelly, who are both really cool dudes in their own right. ETD takes a few cues from the rising black exploitation genre and is thus carried by a really cool, funky soundtrack. And his plot, featuring an island-based tournament where the fighters are from all over the world and practice their own regional styles, is so foundational as a trope, and here it is being absolutely perfected on the first try. Look, I don't always agree with Rotten Tomatoes, and neither should you, but ETD has a 98% certified fresh rating on that site, and that makes absolute sense to me. The film was extremely critically and financially successful the world over, and in 2004 was selected to be in the U.S. National Film Registry, and it made Bruce Lee a world-famous icon multiple times over, demolishing any previous notion that Asian people couldn't take leading roles in major Hollywood films. It is a tremendous artistic achievement, and it's one of the greatest films ever made. Which makes it all the more tragic that Bruce Lee wasn't alive to see the success. On July 20, 1973, Bruce Lee passed away at the untimely age of 32. And right away, let's dispel something, Lee's death wasn't a result of some kind of triad hit job. Though that said, it is certainly a weird death in and of itself. And while I don't believe in any of the conspiracy theories that circulate Lee's death, I can understand where they're coming from. How can one of the fittest men on the planet, heck, maybe to have ever lived, pass away at such a young death with no physical signs of external injury? Let's break it down. Lee suffered a back injury on the set of one of his films and was taking various painkillers throughout his later years. Additionally, and this freaks me out, but apparently, Lee had been embarrassed by his sweaty pit stains and had his sweat glands removed. He had his sweat glands removed. That freaks me out. On May 10th, 1973, while recording voiceovers for ETD, in the hot recording booth, Lee passed out, suffering from headaches and seizures and an apparent heat stroke. He was brought to a hospital and further diagnosed with cerebral edema, which is in essence when the brain swells with too much fluid. The doctors prescribed him mannitol to reduce the swelling. On the day of his death, Lee met with colleagues to go over a script when he began complaining of severe headaches. One of his colleagues by accident gave him equagesic, a potent painkiller. 
Lee then went to take a nap at 7.30pm and when his colleagues went to check on him, they found they couldn't revive him. Unbeknownst to them, Lee had had an allergic reaction when the equagesic and mannitol mixed together, in addition to all the other painkillers he was taking, in addition to a possible heat stroke brought on by his body not being able to properly regulate his body temperature. To further compound this as the cause of death, when Lee was brought to Queen Elizabeth Hospital, a future autopsy found that his brain had swelled by a whopping 13%. So again, while there isn't a conspiracy here, that doesn't mean that it is not a very weird death in and of itself. A lot of things had to go wrong, and unfortunately they did. And so, the legendary actor and martial artist was buried in Seattle's Lakeview Cemetery. Amongst his pallbearers were other celebrities such as Steve McQueen and Chuck Norris. Much later, in 1994, his son Brandon Lee would be buried next to him. Brandon, attempting to begin his own Hollywood career, had been accidentally killed on the set of The Crow, a beautiful movie that is a part of my early childhood. My dad had the soundtrack, and as a kid, I listened to it all the time, and Brandon Lee's image is just super recognizable. You know, despite its flaws, I think it is a classic movie. And I know this is about the Lees, but in addition to the reference to Sesue Harakawa, I want to make a quick reference to Thuy Trang. Um, Thuy Trang was the Vietnamese-born actress who came to America hiding with her family in a freaking crate and incredible story in its own right. Thuy Trang would gain fame starring as Trini, the original Yellow Ranger in the 90s classic TV show Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, another big part of my childhood. The way that she connects to this episode and this story is that Thuy, who was an incredibly beautiful and talented woman, starred as a lesser villain in The Crow 2, which is supposed to be not a very good movie. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's not very good. But she was in the crow too, and then shortly afterwards died in a tragic car accident. While it's impossible to say where her career would have gone, I just feel that in her passing, we lost someone who could have been an incredible presence for Asian actresses in America as well. I know it's a little bit of a tenuous connection there, but between the crow and the crow too, I, I feel like we lost some really incredible Asian-American actors who I think actually could have gone somewhere. I know I'm bouncing around a lot, but in writing the script, I'm happy that I found ways to talk about other famous Asian actors and their trials and tribulations in America. Between Seswe Harakawa, Bruce Lee, Brandon Lee, and Tui Trang. But in the time since his passing, Bruce Lee has left a powerful and positively legendary legacy. So that's who Bruce Lee was. But let's stick into the rest of his legacy. Now, to account the entirety of Bruce Lee's cultural impact is nearly impossible, but dang it, I'm going to do my best. To begin with, let's start with the martial arts. First of all, Bruce Lee is the creator of his own martial art, Jeet Kune Do, which means Way of the Intercepting Fist. Jeet Kune Do is a practical martial art with roots in Wing Chun, but then further incorporates aspects of boxing, fencing, and wrestling. With its focus on grounded self-defense, so for instance, Jeet Kune Do doesn't emphasize high kicks to the head as you need a lot of precision and luck and power to pull one off, 
and instead advises mid-level kicks to an opponent's gut. Such kicks are easier to pull off, and they hit a target that can cause an attacker to really keel over and allow you to get away, for example. So, with its focus on practical self-defense methods, Jikundo is a very popular and very practical self-defense method, and because of that, Bruce Lee is sometimes attributed to being the father of modern MMA. Dana White, the president of the UFC, having stated as much. I don't entirely know if I personally believe that, but as someone who loves martial arts, Bruce Lee really opened up the study of martial arts as a way of life. He wrote philosophical treatises on the practice, and besides opening the door for Asian cinema and actors in America, Bruce Lee also opened up the door for anyone to learn martial arts. There's actually a bit of controversy around this. He wasn't necessarily the first person to do this, but broadly speaking, martial arts practice was largely relegated to Asian communities who kept it a closely guarded secret. But Bruce believed that white people, black people, people of all shapes and colors could practice martial arts. We touched on it earlier, but while struggling in Hollywood, that was how he made his money by teaching martial arts to movie stars like the aforementioned Steve McQueen, Kareem Abdul-Jamar, and of all people, Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, which leads to arguably the most bizarre story of his life, where Bruce Lee's life, where Polanski apparently suspected Lee of playing a part in the Manson murders. Apparently a pair of glasses was left at the scene of the crime, and Polanski tried to see if they were a pair of Lees. They weren't, and I don't really want to talk about this further, but uh, wow. Anyways, all this martial art poetry, philosophy, and flat-out mastery. And yeah, Bruce Lee was never himself a black belt. Nope, didn't believe in that. And while I am not a martial arts master, let me tell you that you don't have to have a belt of any color to learn basic self-defense techniques. In fact, I'm seeing it now, if I ever have kids, they are absolutely getting enrolled in martial arts, so they will always have that knowledge on hand, vicarious living be damned. Besides that, after his sudden and tragic passing, an entire genre of exploitation films popped up around Bruce Lee. Bruce-ploitation films. You know, films starring such martial arts and acting powerhouses as Bruce Lai or Dragon Lee. Often, many of these movies would involve or would circle around plots talking about how Bruce Lee wasn't really dead and was secretly a secret agent of the secret. I can't go on. More notably, the number of vast homages to Bruce, particularly in video games, is vast, vast, vast. Most major fighting game franchises have some sort of Bruce Lee inspired character, such as Liu Kang in Mortal Kombat or Fei Long in Street Fighter, but homages to Bruce can also be found in movies, comics, and so on. Bruce Lee has been an all-around inspiring figure for many, many celebrities, from martial artists, musicians, athletes, and everyone else. He was cited by Time Magazine as one of the most influential people of the last century, and in 2005 a bronze statue was built in Hong Kong of him. Overall, I would say that at the end of the day, Bruce Lee has had an overall positive effect on the world at large. Now, Bruce Lee aficionados are probably screaming at me because in addition to all the other important details I skipped over for the sake of time, I don't blame you, but I didn't talk about the many legends about Bruce Lee's physical feats. Well, that's because I was saving them for the second half of the episode. Obvs. Haters. This is what it is, okay? I said empty your mind. Be formless. Shapeless like water. Now you put water into a cup, 
it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. All right, bill time. And as alluded to less than a minute ago, let's first start by going over some of the physical feats Bruce was said to be able to perform. And while it's great to dive right into the thick of things, let's reel it back just a bit and stay somewhat grounded. While it's fun to say that Bruce Lee just flat out had superpowers, the fact of the matter is that he was still human. There is some fight footage of Bruce Lee available, and what that footage shows is that he was a very good and insightful fighter who was ahead of his time in coming up with practical techniques that would then blossom in later MMA practice. That said, a few things are true. First, it is true that his movements were so fast that they couldn't properly be captured by the cameras at the time, and so he was told to slow his movements down a bit. But perhaps even more important for our purposes, I am very happy to tell you that the one-inch punch was indeed a real thing, and Bruce Lee could do it. But there are a few caveats associated with it. The one-inch punch, while indeed powerful, is based on a Wing Chun training exercise based on channeling explosive energy into a single movement and is probably only really applicable if a dude is really coming up at you and is trying to sit with his chest, homeboy. Otherwise, it's not necessarily the most practical thing you could try to do. Also, part of the reason Bruce Lee could do it is because he just flat out had some of the strongest fingers ever. He could do finger push-ups and had years of experience being Bruce Lee, and so very few people could properly do this move. So really, while I wouldn't like either being done to me, I think I would much rather prefer to be hit by the 1-inch punch than the 6-inch punch, which uses the same explosive force aspect but with even more power to send people flying. You know what? Forget all that. This is D&D we're talking about, a world of Magic and pure imagination. So let's sink our teeth into it. What was Bruce Lee said to be able to do? Well, Bruce Lee had an insane fitness regime. He trained every day and along with guzzling shakes made out of cooked burgers, had to have special training equipment built specifically for him. That's confirmed. If you are interested in attempting to follow Bruce Lee's fitness regime, I... Highly encourage you to look up videos of that. One by Asil Suede uh, did that. I've been trying to follow his Daniel Craig diet because Daniel Craig is the man. But yeah, Bruce Lee, if you're in, if you're wanting to do that, then go ahead and do it. Bruce Lee was also in lots and lots and lots of fights. Sometimes with stuntmen and sometimes with other martial artists. So that is confirmed that there are just lots of stories about duels with Bruce Lee and a lot of maybe false facts have been created around those, but. One battle stands out in particular, or at least it almost was a battle. During his tenure on the Green Hornet, there was a crossover episode with the 60s Batman show, and Bruce Lee was set to fight with Burt Ward's Robin and lose. This caused Lee to get real pissy real fast, and the quote from Lee I have here reads, I'm not going to do that. There's no way that anyone would believe I go in there and fight Robin and lose. <laughs> all of this in addition to all the little <laughs> I'm not going to do that there's no way that anyone would believe I go in there and fight Robin 
and lose. That's so funny to me. And actually, when writing this script, I stopped what I was doing, and I watched the show Death Battle, and Death Battle has an official submission form, and I went there and filled out uh, Kato versus Robin. Please make it happen, Chad and Ben. I think that would be a great, like, sort of versus... Oh, I should probably just add, like, a little cutscene here. Okay. <laughs> I can't help it. That's hilarious to me. That Robin was afraid of Bruce Lee. Okay. <clears throat> all of this in addition to all the little feats of strength and speed attributed to him. Like, him being able to do eight punches in one second or snatch a dime out of your hand, and you wouldn't even notice. And he was a huge pothead. So, where does this leave us with the builds? Well, again, we are building a monk, and we need to make a dang good monk, but we also need to build a monk who can also be an entertainer and has serious social sway and charisma. So, let's start with stats. 15 for dexterity. As a monk, you use your dex score for your unarmed attacks, making this almost a prerequisite for a monk build. Also, that whole had to slow your kicks for the camera thing. 14 for charisma. You became a world-famous actor. 13 for Constitution. You are the premier martial arts actor. You gotta be tough. 12 for Strength. I actually wavered on this a point a bit, as having a high strength score is not entirely important for months. But it is important for Bruce Lee, whose physique continues to inspire. 10 for Wisdom. It's a bit low. So here's what I kind of like to think of it as. If you're wanting to play a character that is more like Bruce Lee in the movies, keep the strength high, keep the strength at 12. But if you're wanting to play Bruce Lee more like how he was in real life, have Wisdom be your 12th score. So we're going to stick obviously with the interpretation of his sort of movie persona, but if you would have it be the other way, go for it. It's probably the smarter thing to do actually. <laughs> and 8 for intelligence. We just don't really need it. For race, we're already going to buck one trend and go with custom lineage. In the battle between custom lineage and variance human and normal human, really what it boils down to is whether you want those two extra points put in just one set or if you want a bit more spread. But I want decks bumped up as much and as quickly as possible, so yeah, put them into dexterity, bumping it to 17. For background, and something of an ironic twist, Take the gladiator background, which is a side option for the entertainer background. Backgrounds aren't really that important in the grand scheme of things, but I kind of like when you can piece them in together with the whole builds, like how I use the Outlander background for Sakagawea. But if you really want to hate, consider. One of Bruce Lee's most famous students was Chuck Norris, and both Lee and him filmed a 10-minute long fight scene for Lee's third film, the Way of the Dragon, that was set in the Colosseum. That's right, Spartacus, the most famous gladiator of all time, never actually fought in the Colosseum, but Bruce Lee did. As a gladiator, you have an entertainment routine that you can set up and allows you to get free lodging in places. So it's sort of like you putting on these little martial arts duels for fans, so I, I, that's how I interpret it. <laughs> Backing up just a bit. Since we took Custom Lineage, we can take an extra feat. Go ahead and take the Actor feat, which allows us to bump our Charisma by 1 point and it to 15, and we get a few other little social bonuses. Alright, let's actually begin the build section. And since this is the first time we will be building a monk, 
we're going to take a bit of extra time to really go over the monk's abilities. Level 1. As a monk, you get unarmored defense, which allows us to add our combined wisdom and dexterity modifiers to our AC. Ooh! Since our wisdom modifier is 0, that means our AC is a beautiful 13. This is why strength isn't as important for monks, but dang it, we're here to roleplay and I'm going to stick to my decision. Anyways, we also get martial arts. Martial arts allows us to optionally use our dexterity score when making unarmed attacks. Your unarmed strikes use a d4 for damage, which will increase as you gain levels, and you can make unarmed strikes after you make an attack as a bonus action. It's why you take a monk, so you can add all these extra little bonus attacks. You also get proficiency in monk weapons, which are short swords and any simple weapon that doesn't have the two-handed property. So nunchucks don't exist in D&D, but a pair of small hammers might be able to do the trick as a DM workaround. Level 2, we get key points. The monk's secret power source goes great on fries. Key allows us to use multiple different monk abilities. You can use Flurry of Blows, allowing you to make multiple unarmed strikes, Patient Defense, allowing us to dodge as a bonus action, and Sip of the Wind, allowing us to similarly use either the Dash or Disengage abilities. You also get Unarmored Movement, allowing you to have an extra 10 feet to your speed when not wearing armor or a shield. And at ninth level, you can walk up vertical surfaces and across liquids without falling. Level 3, we can take our Monk's Monastic Tradition, and Way of the Open Hand is really the clear choice as these are referred to as the ultimate martial artists in the player's handbook itself. Our first feature in this subclass is the open hand technique, which allow us to tack on an extra effect when we hit an enemy with a key point attack, like the flurry of blows. The three options include forcing the target to succeed on a dex saving throw or be knocked prone. It must make a strength saving throw or be knocked back 15 feet. It can't take any reactions until the end of your next turn. All three of these can help show off the raw power in Bruce Lee's legendary strikes. At level 3, we also get deflected missiles, allowing us to, well, deflect or catch missile-based attacks. Not those kinds of missiles, you know, things like bolts, arrows, or knives. The way it works is you can use your reaction to reduce the damage of a ranged weapon attack by 1d10 plus your dex modifier plus your monk level. If you reduce the damage to 0 and the weapon is small enough, you can then make a ranged attack with that same weapon you caught at 20 to 60 feet as part of the same reaction. Neat. At level 4, we can take a feat and we're going to take the skill Expert Feat. This might seem strange, but we're going to use it to play a bit of catch-up. Skill Expert allows us to increase a stat by 1 point, so take your dex to 18 this way. You can also choose one skill of your choice to get proficiency in, and you can choose one skill that you have proficiency in to get expertise in. This is why we're taking this feat. I really wanted Bruce to have proficiency and not expertise in the intimidation skill. I feel sorry for Burt Ward. I don't feel sorry for Robin. Swissly. At level 5, you get extra attack, which is straightforward enough, and stunning strike. Here, when you successfully attack someone with a melee weapon, you can spend a key point the target then has to make a con save or be stunned until the end of your next turn. Level 6, you get key empowered strikes. Here, your fists literally become magic, at least for the purpose of overcoming resistance and immunity to non-magical attacks and damage. You also get your second monastic feature, this being wholeness of body. After a long rest, you can heal three times your monk level as an action. Level 7, you get two more things. 
For evasion, if the attack in question allows you to make a dex throw, such as a blue dragon's breath attack, you don't take any damage if you succeed and only half damage if you fail. You also get stillness of mind, allowing you to make an action that allows you to remove a status effect, like being charmed or frightened. At level 8, you can take another feat. Take Athletes. Hey, I think that's a little wrap there. Well, anyways, with Athletes, you can increase the stat by 1 point, put it in Dex to take it to 19. You also get a few more physical benefits as well. When prone, standing up uses only 5 feet of movement, climbing doesn't cost us any extra movement, and you can make running and high jumps after only 5 feet of movement. Level 9, we get that previous unarmored movement improvement, which means the climbing aspect of the feat we just took is kind of worthless enough. But it's still, it's still fine. Or you could just take those extra points and put it into any of your either scores. Hopefully you rolled well. How about that? <laughs> Hopefully you rolled 20 for all your stats. That's what we hope for when we make a character anyways. Level 10, you get Purity of Body, which is really quick to explain. You become immune to disease and poison. That diet, man, that diet. Level 11, you get something called Tranquility, and it's a little weird. You become a super chill dude, entering a meditation where the power of your aura acts as a sanctuary spell. What on earth is a sanctuary spell? It's a protective spell. You can choose a creature who receives a protective ward. Any enemy that targets the warded creature has to make a wisdom save, and if it fails, it has to choose a new target. That's essentially the sanctuary spell, and Tranquility allows you to cast it on yourself and it lasts until the start of your next long rest. The save throw for this spell is 8 plus your wisdom modifier plus your proficiency bonus, which is now plus 4, so pretty good. Level 12. We don't need to mix it up too much. Let's, let's go ahead and keep it the basic ability score improvement, which allows us to increase either one ability score by 2 points or two different stats by 1 point. So let's cap our dexterity by taking it to 20 and put another point into con, retroactively increasing our health by 12 points. Wait a minute. Wait one minute. Either plus two to one stat, or plus one to two different stats? Have I been getting this wrong the whole time? Uh... Level 13. You get Tongue of the Sun and Moon, making you fluent in all languages, because martial arts is a universal language. Level 14. You get Diamond Soul, making you proficient with all saving throws, because Bruce Lee never made any mistakes. Well, at least in the movies, he did it. Level 15, you become immune to the effects of old age and you no longer need to eat or drink thanks to Timeless Body, because your image is timeless. Level 16, we're going to take the Tavern Brawler feat. And I know some of you are probably going to be crying, BOO! But just, okay, hear me out. First of all, by taking this feat, we can increase our strength score to 13, which is good. But more importantly, at the DM's discretion, you can use improvised weapons and as a bonus action, you can attempt a grapple. The reason I chose this feat is then twofold. In martial arts movies, people often use improvised weapons all the time. Granted, this is more of a Jackie Chan thing, like when he used a freaking ladder to beat people up, but Bruce could certainly do this too. Also, Jeet Kune Do incorporated grappling into its forms, so this checks out. That said, yes, this feat is severely strained by the DM's discretion, and monks don't really benefit from this feat since their fists already do 1d4 damage. Actually, yours do more than that by this point. So, you know, I guess you could just take the ability score improvement, if you're boring. Level 17, you get Quivering Palm, which is just straight up the death punch from Kill Bill. Awesome. Level 18, with the expenditure of 4 key points, you can become straight up invisible, which simultaneously makes you immune to everything but force damage 
and you can astral project. This is becoming dangerously out of character, but I actually have a way to explain it. Really, I do. Remember how Bruce's punches and kicks couldn't be seen on the cameras at the time? Eh? Eh? And really, Jeet Kune Do, Bruce's martial arts philosophy, and martial art I should say, is all about being formless. On the symbol for Jeet Kune Do, the Taijitu characters read, using no way as a way, and having no limitation as limitation. Or, you know, having an empty body, like being able to astral project? Meh. Level 19, we can take another feat or ability score, and I'm actually going to leave it up to you. You see, originally, I was going to take the grappler feat. You need a strength score of 13 to have it, which you now do, because of the tavern brawler feats, and the grappler feat makes you a more proficient grappler. You could also, you know, just increase your wisdom score or any of your other stats, or you can do what I did, which I think is the most fun. Recall how Bruce Lee was born in the year and hour of the dragon? Well, I think that's a perfect enough reason to take the feat Gift of the Gem Dragon. You can increase your charisma score by 1 point to a now quite respectable 16. This feat from Fizzben's Treasury of Dragons gives you a powerful psychic attack. When you take damage from a creature that's within 10 feet of you, you can make it so they have to make a strength save throw of 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus your charisma modifier, and if they fail, they take 2d8 force damage and get pushed back by 10 feet. And you can do this as many times as your current proficiency bonus. Make it so that when you do get hit, people immediately regret it. Level 20 and... Oh, hold on, my phone's buzzing. Dang, looks like I'll have to call back. Speaking of callbacks to episode 1 of Heroes in History, we're going to be taking a single level of BARD! Dang, those stupid cha-cha classes. Okay, fact of the matter, Bruce Lee was an actor and he worked well with the stuntman. Taking a level of Bard will really help us balance out just how charismatic he was, so yeah, level 1 of Bard. We get Bardic inspiration using our poetry to inspire fellow stuntmen or students to do better, getting a 1d6 roll to either an ability check, attack roll, or saving throw. We also get spell casting with 2 cantrips, 4 first level Bard spells, and 2 spell slots. And for the sake of speed, I'm just going to breeze through these real fast. For cantrips, take True Strike and Vicious Mockery, and for your spells, take Heroism, Charm Person, Healing Word, and Bane. Alright, the build is over. Let's take a look at how we did. First of all, yes, you are a monk with good charisma skills. Able to intimidate and, thanks to that quick dip into Bard, you can inspire and persuade people. Thanks to the monk's special abilities, you're relatively low maintenance. You don't get poison, you don't need sustenance. Yeah, yeah, but that's, all, but that's all the standard monk stuff. How does they compare overall to other monk builds? Well, in terms of health, he's sitting around at a good 150 health range if you rolled well, which isn't too shabby for a monk, but more than that, Bruce Lee has a lot of good ways to punish people who try to get too close. Between the key and power to strikes, quivering palm, and just the overall reliability from flurry of blows, if people try to take you on, they're gonna get smacked. But even though it all comes in at the end, Gift of the Gem Dragon and your couple of Bard spells pair really nicely with Way of the Open Palm. Between your many ways to stun your opponents, keep them at bay with your Psychic Blast, and spice up your attacks with spells like Vicious Mockery, along with flat out intimidating your opponents, well, what I'm trying to say is that you have a lot of good ways to kind of indirectly mess with your opponents' minds while keeping on the hurt. In so many words, you have a few different ways to do things like the 1-inch punch, 
that can often send enemies flying back by like 10 or 15 feet. So it's really fun in that way. There's a little bit of a, it's a mix between the psychological presence that your character has and just the charisma and being able to lay on a nice good bit of smack. What's not so fun? Your AC. I decided to go for overall toughness over untouchability, but with an AC of 16, you're going to get hit a lot. But you do have good ways to mitigate that damage. With abilities like evasion, empty body, and deflect missiles, you have good ways to generally avoid damage. Pair that with wholeness of body, letting you gain 57 health at will when you need it at least once a day, and you should generally be okay. The other thing though is your low intelligence. Yes, I know. IRL. Bruce Lee was fairly brilliant. It's just kind of something that can happen in the game. Still, you could be on the receiving end of some bad saves. Though, hey, you have proficiency in all save throws, so that's nice. You know what, at the end of the day, this is a super well-balanced build. There are some nickels I have with some of the other monk abilities that sometimes seem a bit superfluous, like Timeless Body, but overall, this is a good, flashy, charismatic build, just like Bruce. In regards to being in a party, Bruce makes for a very good face man for the party and being a good bit of supporting muscle. For DMs building their campaigns, well, similar to the previous episode where I mentioned playing in a Coliseum, you can play out the plot of Enter the Dragon. Now, I say similar, but I don't mean the same. Weapons were allowed in the Coliseum and was open to the public. Enter the Dragon was martial arts only and self-closed. But yeah, people can play various monk, fighter, or even barbarian builds. You can try to build a plot around it with them all beating each other up with their fists. So, but that's Enter the Dragon. You can use any Bruce Lee movie to help inspire your own campaign. Really, they all make for interesting D&D plots. Alright, for music. Well, it's another bit of metal injection. You see, while I am first and foremost a punker, as evident from last week's episode, I have an affinity for metal. And while I think Max Cavalera is metal's true timeless wonder, at the end of the day, the Chinese band Voodoo Kung Fu is the most extreme metal band ever. Ever. Never mind your Panteras, Tools, or lame metalcore crap like Bring Me the Horizon or whatever. Voodoo Kung Fu is the end-all, be-all for extreme metal. Just look at their song Evil Spirit for Proof. Only early Kanduria comes close, but in a very different way, but I digress. Anyways, Voodoo Kung Fu is a super interesting band, and here's a clip from their song, Bruce Lee. Warning, this is going to be loud and heavy.
awesome. Or, if that Chinese mustard for your ears isn't up your alley, then just listen to the soundtrack for Enter the Dragon by Lalo Schifrin. It's amazing and cool and as funky as the film scores. Mm, yeah. Uh, Don't Mess with the Dragon by Ozamali is also very good. Don't do that stupid Everyone Was Kung Fu Fighting song, though. It's really played out by this point. One other note. Guys, the daughter of Bruce Lee, Shannon Lee, has her own podcast. It's dedicated to the life as well as philosophy of Bruce Lee and is called Bruce Lee Podcast. A very cool show from a very cool lady. And returning back to Brandon Lee real quickly, uh, he was born on February 1st. And this episode is coming out in February of 2022, fairly early. So I, I, I think it's okay that it's paired around the same time. So yes, just thank you, Bruce. <laughs> Alright, so that's the Bruce Lee episode. What a long but fun ride it's been. Our riddle for our next episode. Uh, whatever that is. You know, actually, while coming up with riddles is fun, I think I'm going to move to straight up vague but riddle-less clues. While the riddles are fun, I think it might be a bit more fun for the listener if it's not some sort of strange jumble of words from a wannabe poet. Anyways, our next episode is going to be our paladin build. And I can tell you that this is going to come out in March, in celebration of Women's History Month, because our build is going to be a woman who is a paladin, which is probably a clue in and of itself. So we'll leave it at that then. <laughs> Some questions and comments to punkarkajpodcasts at gmail.com. Special thanks to BT Newberg and Rachel Westhoff for the awesome logo art. Please consider checking out Newberg's podcasts, deadideas.net and History of Sex Pod. If you would like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash podcasts. And remember, the die is mightier than the sword. folks, one more Bruce Lee-related thing. As Bruce Lee is our most recent figure, I thought it wonderful that we have plenty of footage of him in movies and interviews. As such, I thought it would be cool if we truly ended this episode going out to the audio and words of Bruce Lee's audition for Cato in the Green Hornet. This is a bit long and much more worthwhile if you get to watch it in the real footage. Bruce Lee shows off some of his kung fu and you get to actually see how fast his strikes really were. For the 60s era cameras. He's also wearing a suit and IMHO. I think he's super dope and handsome looking in the footage and just very, very cool to cameras. So go check it out. Anyways, here's the audition. Thank you for the show. Please go check out Bruce Lee Podcast by Shannon Lee for more information and just keep doing good, people. Keep doing good. Thank you very much. Now, Bruce, just look right into the camera lens right here and tell us your name, your age, and where you were born. My last name is Lee, Bruce Lee. I was born in San Francisco in 1940. I'm 24 right now. And you worked in uh, motion pictures in Hong Kong? Yes, uh, since I was around six years old. And when did you leave Hong Kong? 1959, when I was 18. I see. Now look over to me, Bruce, as we talk. Uh, I understand you just had a baby boy? Yeah. And uh, you've lost a little sleep over it, have you? Oh, three nights. <laughs> and tell the crew what time uh, they shoot the pictures in Hong Kong. 
Well, it's mostly uh, in the morning because it's kind of noisy in Hong Kong, you know, around three million people there. And so every time when you have picture, it's mostly, say, around 12 a.m. to 5 a.m. in the morning. I see. They love that there. And you went to college in the United States? Yes. And what did you study? Uh, philosophy. I see. Now, you told me earlier today that karate and uh, jiu-jitsu are not the most powerful or the best forms of uh, oriental fighting. What is the most powerful or the best form? Well, <clears throat> it's bad to say the best, but uh, <laughs> in my opinion, I think Kung Fu is pretty good. Would you tell us a little bit about Kung Fu? Well, Kung Fu is originated in China. It is the ancestor of karate and jiu-jitsu. It's more of a complete system and it's more fluid. By that I mean it's more flowing. There is continuity in movement instead of uh, one movement, two movement, and then stop. Would you look right into the camera lens and explain the principle of the glass of water as it applies to Kung Fu? Well, Kung Fu, the best example would be a glass of water. Why? Because uh, water is the softest substance in the world, but yet it can penetrate the hardest rock or anything, granite, you name it. Um, water also is insubstantial. By that I mean you cannot grasp hold of it. You cannot punch it and hurt it. So every Kung Fu man is trying to do that, to be soft like water and flexible and adapt itself to the opponent. What's the difference between a Kung Fu punch and a Karate punch? Well, the Karate punch is like an iron bar, whang! A Kung Fu punch is like an iron chain with an iron ball attached to the end and it go whang and it hurt inside. Okay, now we're going to cut and in just a second we'll uh, have you stand up and show us some Kung Fu and some movements in Kung okay. Fu. Okay. Cut. Cut it. Okay. Test X2, take one. Steve. Now look directly into the camera, Bruce. Directly at it. And now give me a three-quarter this way. And hold it. And give me a profile that way, all the way. Good. Hold it. Now come back to a profile on the other side. And hold that. Give me a three-quarter on that side. And then give me right into the camera again. All right. Now the camera will pull back. And, uh, Bruce... First, show me the movements in the classical Chinese theater. Classical Chinese well, theater? Well, you know what we talked about in the office, how they walk and how they start to move. Well, in uh, Chinese opera, they have the warrior and then the scholar. The way the, war the warrior walk will be something like this. Walking this way, straight, come out, bend, straight, and then walk out again. An ordinary scholar would be just like a female, a weakling, 90 pounds in child Alice. <laughs> You'll be just walking, you know, like a girl, real, shoulder up and everything. So by the way they walk, you can immediately tell who they right, are. Right, uh, what character they represent. Now, uh, show us some Kung Fu movements. Well, it is hard to show it alone, but uh, I will try to do my best. All right, maybe one of the fellows will walk in. You walk yeah, in? it would be... Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Come, on, Come on, lady. Okay. Although accidents do happen, but, you know... <laughs> there are various kind of strikes. It depends on where you hit and what weapon you will be using. To the eyes, you would use fingers. Don't worry. <laughs> I will be. To the eyes. Or straight at the face, 
from the waist, everything on. Hold it just a minute. Uh, let's move this gentleman around this way so you're doing it more into the camera. No, okay, okay, swell. And then there is band arm strike using the waist again into a back fist. And uh, let's have the assistant director back up just the waist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. Continue. And then, of course, Kung Fu is very sneaky. You know, the, chi the Chinese, they always hit low. From high, go back to the groin. <laughs> Don't worry. Now turn around the other way with you, Bruce. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, Would you want him yes. to? Oh, These are just natural here. reactions. That's right, right. right. That's right. natural right. reactions. Right into the camera. Cheat into the camera a little bit and show this again. All right. Go ahead. There is the finger jab. There is the punch. There is the back fist and then low. Of course, then they use leg straight at the groin, all come up. Or, if I can back up a little bit, they start back from here and then come back. <laughs> all right. It's kind of worried. Uh, he, he has nothing to worry about. Now, no. once again, uh, show us uh, how, how a good Gong Fu man would very coolly handle it and walk away rather than get involved in a series of actions. Cut it. This Sound. Okay. okay. Test X2, take two. Uh, now, Bruce, so that we can clearly see what you're doing uh, this time, uh, we'll face the fact that there's nobody there. Uh, okay. Show me now the difference between jiu-jitsu, which is long and involved, and gung fu, which is very quick if you have an opponent. All right, for instance, you will read it in the book, in the magazine and everything, that when somebody grabs you, you will first do this, and then this, and then, and then, and then, and then, thousands of steps before you do a single thing. Of course, these kind of magazine would uh, teach you to be feared by your enemies and admired by your friends and everything. Thing. But uh, in Kung Fu, it always involves a very fast motion. Like, for instance, a guy grabbing your hand. It's not the idea to do so many steps. Step him right on the instep. He'll let go. This is what we mean by simplicity. Same thing in striking and in everything. It has to be based on a very minimum motion so that everything would be directly expressed. <laughs> one motion and he's gone doing it gracefully not to go ah yelling and jumping all over him but to do it excuse me okay, okay now show me once again just a few movements there well uh, Kung Fu can be practiced uh, alone or with a partner uh, practicing alone they involve forms some imitate a crane a monkey a praying mantis this is a crane form start off This is one of the movement involved. Show us one more movement and then we'll be all through. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> they have the tiger that start like a tiger. Using claw to claw the face. Or the beak of the crane to the eyes move. This is some of the movement involved. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.